Great Patient One Chapter 20 Read by Akchan Suchito and Nick Scott With the passing of the full moon, the next chapters cover the fifth lunar cycle, along with a new map available for download with this chapter. After three weeks walking through forested hills, Achan and Nick are back on the Ganges plain and approaching the ancient city and religious centre of Varanasi, or Banaras. Chapter 20 The Family Business Achan Suchito February 8th If there's a right way to enter Varanasi, we surely found it, being rowed down the Ganges from Ramnagar on the eastern bank, across that broad brown flow strewn with garlands and stuff that you didn't want to look at too closely, to the city that makes it holy. The silent boatman leant into his oars, and the rowlocks creaked steadily. On the farther shore, crowded with ghats and temples, the pious came to be cleansed of sin, to spend their last moments on earth, or to have the ashes of their dead sprinkled. As we drew nearer we could see the stone steps that led down to the river, thronging with people involved in ritual ablution, the burning ghats, where the dead are cremated, were further to the north and downstream. To have one's remains cast into the tide on the Varanasi shore guarantees rebirth in heaven. To die on the uninhabited banks immediately to the east is, they say, to be reborn as a donkey. So for us, lumbering out of the wilds and back to the civilised world, it was an auspicious crossing. We were crossing over too fast, much too fast. We wanted to treasure the time, enshrine that rare, tranquil window onto the thronging involvement of India. We asked the boatman to stop while we chanted a puja. He paused briefly, but in a matter of moments bent back to it again. He just wanted to get the crossing over and done with. Here, at least, I have the measure. Let's wait. Pictures are easier to describe than flux. The little red diary sketches the romantic vision of the city seen from a Shiva shrine in the Maharaja's palace on the Ramnagar shore. In one cramped page of tiny writing, we gazed over the broad sweep of the Ganges to the frontage of ghats and temples of various vintage serrating the sky as they knelt along the western bank. Canaletto and Turner would have painted Varanasi from this quiet vantage. They knew how well a sheet of water could frame a city with reflective stillness. The pale greeny-bronze river's flank was spangled with the white specks of bathers wrapped in their best dhotis and saris. Boats bobbing on her breast measured her rhythmic breathing, and the city, under a clear blue heaven, nuzzled up to Ganges like a calf to the other. 
Here, one of the fundamental images of the culture is portrayed. Mother Ganga receiving her multitudinous offspring, cleaning them of all impurity, and in death, accepting their ashes into her heart. Memory adds some background. We had pounded heavy-footed into Ramnagar late in the morning, with not much time for a meal, and sank into a chai shop of such surpassing filth that even the rats running around the floor looked embarrassed. The customers were served by bright-eyed boys who looked about eight, and whose thumbs regularly went for immersion in whatever runny dish they happened to be carrying. We chose plain parotas, huge ones, a forearm's length across, and bolted them down throats grown leathery from periodic searing. Then, slowing down into a post-march, post-prandial daze, we headed for the river, looking for a crossing, and happened across a massive fortified palace. A friendly Brahmin told us it had belonged to the Maharaja of Banaris, and waved us in. It was now state property, and the superintendent gave us only fifteen minutes to look around. Lunchtime is at one o'clock, he stated calmly, but with some finality. It wasn't going to be easy to absorb the mood of unhurried imperial grandeur in a quarter of an hour, but we felt it was our duty to gobble as much of it down as possible. The diary sputters indignantly in an attempt to savour every morsel of that labyrinthine splendour. Old Belgian Minerva car, palanquins, pistols, rifles, swords, ivories, ceramics, brocades, textiles, photos of former and current Maharaja plus Brits in pith helmets awkwardly trying to sit cross-legged, or visiting monarchs, e.g. Haile Selassie. A carefully constructed guidebook would paint the vision with much more taste and grace, but miss out on the Pollock-like impasto. Bruegel, on the other hand, would have noted a sleeping attendant outside the palace's temple, waking to hold his hand out as we left. In fact, he would probably have set up his easel in the chai shop and painted the whole scene from there. Outside, the Brahmin arranged a ferry across the river. It will cost seventy-five rupees. We gave the money to a boatman, who rowed us about thirty metres along a waterfront to a smaller, shabbier boat, containing a smaller, shabbier boatman. A brief dialogue ensued that entailed us being transferred down market. It'd be interesting to know how the seventy-five rupees got divided between the three of them. But that's business, and Varanasi has always been about business. Before there were temples and stone steps leading down to the water, long before what we now call Hinduism, with its images and gods, became the order of the day. Certainly the city was well established in the time of the Buddha, as a centre for the production of fine muslin and brocades, and as the capital of Kasi, a kingdom that had just been assimilated into Kosala. And by that time, the important religious business of fire worship and ritual immersion was a well-established means of livelihood for the local Brahmin priests. They probably wouldn't have welcomed the competition that a summoner introduced particularly one who denied the efficacy of ablution and fire-worship 
and oppose blood sacrifice and the taboos of caste, bent on pointing to a liberation that could be achieved by an individual within themselves in no great length of time, the Buddha moved on north to the deer park outside the city, modern Sarnath. But even he was eventually dragged back, posthumously, to Vedic sanctity. In 1794, when Jagat Singh, minister of the Maharaja, had the ancient Buddhist stupa nearby Sarnath demolished for the sake of its brickwork, the ashes of Gautama the Buddha were discovered in it. Anxious that his fellow countrymen should at last find his way to heaven, the good man had them thrown into the Ganges. As we were pulling up at the Ghat, a festive procession greeted us, garlanded with flowers and salutations of Namaste, Bakshish. We passed through that and got moving, away from the steps that led into the water and into the dense tangle of capillary-like alleys like the make-up the Chowk. The Chowk is the network through which the whole city, extending back north and west to a bustling mercantile sprawl with a formerly British cantonment of upper-class houses and south to the Sanskrit university, connects to the Ganges. Through the choked passages moves whatever daily blessing has been generated by means of ritual sacrifice and ablution, but the chowk is as much or more a bazaar as the religious core. It is predominantly a mass of tiny shops, most commonly selling beads, satin and perfumes. Sandalwood, the universal incense, pervades the air and, hello, change money? softly drifts into the ear from an unidentified space just to one side of your vision. Meanwhile, through the press of bodies in the alleys, temples can be glimpsed, behind the shop frontage, yet amongst them, like the Hindu gods themselves. The teeming chaos of the place is sanctified by being dedicated to Shiva in his fertility aspect as Vishveshvara, God of all, and Vishvanatha, Lord of all. The God first appears under the name Rudra, the Howler, in the Veda Sanghita, and in the later Upanishads was addressed as a manifestation of the Supreme, with many names, including that of Shiva, the epics mentioning with honour, and in the collections of legends and stories known as Puranas, the God acquires a massive, though apparently contradictory, potency. An ascetic, a solitary yogi, meditating high in the Himalayas, reluctant to marry Parvati, the daughter of the mountain, Shiva is yet a source of fertility and blessing, and at the same time, Bhairava, the terrible destroyer, whose Tandava dance brings the world to its close. And he is also Gangadhara, the bearer of the Ganges. She was a river of heaven once, streaming from Vishnu's toe. According to the Puranas, it was only through the power of the sage Bhagirata that she was brought down from above. She didn't want to come at all, was angry, very angry, at being pulled by his power down to the earth realm. Thousands of miles she fell, 
and there was fear that the power of a descent would crush the earth. Then Shiva came forward to catch her on his brow, so that she flowed to the earth with his piled-up hair, and, carrying the accumulated power of all that sacrifice and devotion, the flowing stream became the mother of the world. Now holy places and people by the million cling to her. Near her source in the mountains of Rishikesh or at Haridwar, there are scores of ashrams where near-naked sadhus, hair matted or bound into topknots and bodies smeared with ash, undertake austerities. The power of their offering themselves to God is galvanizing. Every twelve years, according to astrological calculations, at Haridwar or at Allahabad, where the Ganges and the Jumna meet, and are joined by the heavenly and invisible river Sarasvati, there is the mass gathering known as the Kumbha Mela. Fifteen million people would gather beside the river for immersion, and at auspicious moments, in unstoppable surges that leave a few hundred trampled underfoot, plunge into the sacred tide. In the Chauk, it's hardly like being in a city. The experience is more archetypal. One is in the press of birth and death. The very sky is all but blotted out by the torrent of the many folk. Yet there is a current, and as much through its agency as through our own efforts, we pass through and into the clotted arteries of the main thoroughfares, where at least the sky could be seen. Somewhere in this fertile flood, bearing Sikhs and sadhus and everyone in between, carrying cows, rickshaws, scooters and honking cars, slowly onwards, was the post office. And beyond that, Clark's Hotel. The first would offer us the emotional uplift of letters from the family and friends, and beyond that, Mr. Upadhyay would regale us with food, drink and running water. And somewhere, surely, would be the chance to rest, to shelter from the elements and make running repairs on bodies and belongings. So, stopping off here and there for supplies, we let go into the shifting purgatory of the street. In a shop on the way, Nick brought some cloth for me to use in modifying my bag. The zip on the top had given up, and I intended to replace it with a drawstring and a flap that I could tie down. His bag needed some fixing too. Its handles, designed only for hand-holding, were coming off under the strain of having Nick's arms thrust through them as he wore it knapsack style. His method of packing was to wrap the sooty cooking pot in a plastic bag and then force everything else, shirt, tea, maps, candles, biscuits, in at random. As the bag stretched beyond its limits and couldn't close its mouth, he would squash it down and kneel on it to get the contents compressed. Sometimes it would take the two of us holding the unwilling victim down to force the zip to close. In short, it was getting the same treatment that India doles out to its long-suffering vehicles and to its gasping cities. As is characteristic of the species, Varanasi's body rhythms fluctuate between spasms of festivals and riots and seizures of near-paralytic congestion. In the city, it's easy to see the connection between fertility, birth and death. Where reproduction becomes a religious principle, 
overcrowding and destitution are inevitable consequences. Huge yellow billboards advocating birth control may smile down from the main thoroughfares, but the family business is too deeply ingrained. The need to make favourable connections via marriage and the urge to produce children to increase the commodity of kindred are underlined by the tenet that one will not enter heaven unless one has produced a son. Though the earth groans, too much, too much, Shiva dances his birth-death dance, and Mother Ganga flows on, bearing yet more garlands, excrement and ashes. Nick Scott Varanasi was the biggest disappointment of the pilgrimage. Other experiences had been a lot worse, but I hadn't been expecting anything of them. It was the two weeks of pleasant walking getting there, during which I'd come to envisage Varanasi as magical, that did it. The reality that slowly dawned as we pushed our way along the chalk was that it was crowded, filthy and ugly. Everyone seemed to be rude and on the make, pestering us. We collected our mail from the post office and fled in a motor rickshaw to Clark's Hotel. But Mr. Upudai of the motorbike, Tibetan Buddhism, and when you come to Varanasi you must look me up, wasn't there, and another dream we'd carried was deflated. So we clambered back into the same motor rickshaw, which was waiting on the off chance round the corner, and took it to the mundane and unmagical Burmese Buddhist Vihara. The Vihara used to be the place to stay in Varanasi when I was last in India, always with an interesting collection of long-term travellers, stopping off for a while from their perambulations about the subcontinent, the spiritually inclined, full of the ashram and Rishikesh that they'd just been staying in and swapping stories of gurus and their miraculous doings, and the more hedonistic, passing through on their annual migration between the Himalayas and their wintering grounds on the beaches of Goa. I think everyone used the Vihara because it was so cheap. In those days we could stay in India as long as we wanted, the only restriction being how long we could make our money last. Some had been there years, so that their money had completely run out. They were surviving by doing drug deals, selling their passports, or picking up bits of work. One of the favourites was working as extras for the Bombay film industry. Though you couldn't have long hair or beards for that. Things had changed at the Burmese Vihara. The place still looked the same. It was behind the municipal bus station, and like it had a functional brick and concrete block architecture. But there was only one traveller while we were there, a lady on her way from a Goenka meditation course who had stopped for one night before heading on to Kathmandu. All the other Westerners in Varanasi were staying in the more expensive little hotels overlooking the Ghats. In the old days, that was where those we dismissed as tourists used to stay but that was the only kind of traveller there seemed to be now. 
there was just one resident bhikkhu, and he was only in Varanasi for six months studying at the university. The Vihara was run by a young man, employed as the manager, who told me they were having real trouble making ends meet. There had been no Burmese pilgrims since Burma's borders closed in the 60s, and now there were few Westerners. They tried pleading to the Burmese government for help, but they didn't hold out much hope. The only way they had of supplementing their income was hiring the Vihara out for wedding functions. They didn't like doing it. Hindu wedding ceremonies were hardly what a Buddhist pilgrim's rest house was meant for, but there was nothing else. The family providing the next wedding reception arrived the same day as us. Soon after we settled in, there was a lot of commotion outside, and we were disturbed by various people walking into our room, presumably looking around at the facilities they'd hired. The wedding wasn't taking place for two days, but there was a lot of preparation to be done. They started on the Vihara in earnest the next morning, but I missed that, as I'd gone to get our visas replaced at the Foreigners' Registration Department. Visas were how India dealt with all the moneyless young Westerners of the 60s and early 70s, the kind of people that used to stay at the Vihara. Now everyone had to have one, and they were limited to six months. I'd suspected when the policeman in Calcutta had said we could replace our lost visas in Varanasi that it was only a way of passing the problem on. I was right. In Varanasi, they passed us on to New Delhi. We must go there if we wanted to get a new visa, and I was warned it would take several weeks. By my return, the wedding preparations were well underway. Young men were balancing on ladders and stringing lines of electric fairy lights between the buildings. They were also covering everything with silver tinsel. It was twisted onto the fairy light cables, strung along the face of the buildings, hung from every available projection, and it covered a new large bamboo arch across the entrance. Meanwhile, at the back of the compound, women were preparing vast quantities of food. A row of ovens had been built, from clay and bricks, and there was a big pile of wood with which to feed them. The young manager had moved us from our original ground floor room to one on the upper floor in an adjacent building. Presumably this was an attempt to give us some privacy, but from the scale of the preparations for a wedding that wasn't until the following night, we were beginning to realise that it was something we weren't going to be able to ignore, wherever we were. After a rest in the Vihara, I got down to washing our things and more sewing. However holy the place, most human activity is about maintaining domestic standards. The manager gave us a room and let me use the phone to attempt to contact Mr. Upadjai. Things came together. Wide-hipped matriarchs who were preparing for the wedding happily filled my bowl. Nick did his shopping and even took us out for a meal as a treat. 
Domestic duties like filling in the diary and writing letters also helped create some inner cohesion. I'd kept up a steady outpouring of minor epics to my families, my brother and mother on one side, and the Sangha in various monasteries on the other. Varanasi was the principal address that I had given to pick up incoming mail, and to my delight I received quite a bit. Monks and nuns had sent me their best wishes, and a replacement copy of the party Morka. Separate worlds hovered nearer. Even my brother, no great correspondent, had written. I opened his letter nervously. What news of my mother? It was quite a long letter, and the relief I felt at the end of it made it clear how much had been nagging away in the back of my mind. He described the situation I was familiar with before I left. She had various bowel disorders and was also having memory losses. On my last visit, I noticed her obsession with recording the time to keep a sense of connection to events. Even then, my brother had been with her nearly every day, doing odd jobs, washing clothes and keeping her company. He had hired a home help to come round to do her washing, cook, cut her hair and whatever else. Since November, mother's condition had deteriorated and my brother felt that it was better to find her a place where there would be 24-hour attendance. He was writing to let me know, so that my mind would be at rest, till she had finally settled into a retirement home. I felt proud of him. He was using family life to do a lot of good things. My life of contemplation and non-attachment though an inspiration to many people, and never seemed to be of much interest to my own family. When I first returned to England from Thailand, I'd really wanted to offer my family something enriching for my experience. But all they seemed to notice was the renunciation, the awkwardness of not eating afternoon, the antisocial abstinence from social drinking and watching television. To my mother, at least, bhikkhu life was an avoidance of life, a meaningless sacrifice. But I kept the connection. Maybe the letters from India, in which watered-down Buddhist reflections could be slipped into description of events and scenery, would have a subliminal effect. A lot of religion is just about dealing with the sense of belonging, the pain and joy of that. Theistic explanations often try to fit it all together by taking us back to grander versions of father or mother who will gather us back into eternity. But in India, the picture is vaster, more detailed than any family dynamic. All creation is governed by Dharma, which covers the rhythms that brings worlds into being and brings them to an end, the vows that bind the deities, the various roles and functions of the castes, and even the minutiae of religious procedure and social protocol. And at every level, there are rituals, formulae, and sacred words to ensure that the great balance of dharma is maintained. Hence, the Vedas, the collections of the word, which are considered too sacred for the lower castes to even hear. For them, there are the tales of the gods and of heroes, the Puranas and the Hityasas. The Vedas, the hymns, teachings, rituals and procedures of sacrifice and purification, are the business 
of the Brahmin priests. According to the Veda, it is correct sacrifice, or the self-sacrifice of renunciation, that grants the greatest power for success, and the learned Brahmins are those best suited to conduct ritual sacrifice on behalf of those who cannot sacrifice themselves through celibacy or asceticism. Referred to in the text as the human gods, the Brahmins summon and manipulate the gods' power through sacred word and ritual. The human need for blessing, for safe passage through the poignant throes of birth and death, has been their affair for millennia. And the guts at Varanasi, on the banks of the sacred river, are of course one of the most auspicious places to have such needs addressed. So, without much conviction, with a vague determination to do the Varanasi thing right, we decided to begin our second full day in the city by the river. We'd get to the guts before dawn, swathed in robes and blankets so that in the dim light we would not be noticed as Westerners. We left the Vihara at 4.30 and began by walking. The streets were quiet, but Nick knew we wouldn't have to walk the three kilometres to the river. We avoided the rickshaws by the bus station. Better to take a ride when you're walking. Gives you a psychological advantage when it comes to haggling a price. After about five minutes of displays of complete indifference to a motor rickshaw, the price eventually dropped to an acceptable level. OK, five rupees. OK? We clambered aboard and made it to the guts by five o'clock. On the steps that led down to the water were a few stalls where vendors were already arranging pots of pigment and garlands of flowers. It was the cold time of day in the cold season, but as dawn came up, a few men and women swathed in white came down to bathe. Some were, to judge by the intensity of their manner, visiting pilgrims making a very special event of it. The vendors gave them a lot of attention. Apart from garlands, the pilgrims could also have a mantra recited for a fee. Then they descended the steps into the water to about waist depth, turning clockwise three times, and with one hand holding the nostrils, they ducked beneath the soupy surface. Other arrivals treated the whole thing more casually, chatting briefly to the vendors before rolling up their dotis and standing ankle-deep to imbibe a mouthful of Ganges. They must have been city-dwellers on their way to work. Now and then, a quarrel would break out among rival vendors, subsiding only when customers came by. We sat back, had tea, and chatted with some of the mystically inclined Westerners, the latest in the long tradition of those who await the sun's rising over the river. This has been a sacred moment since time immemorial. Now is the most auspicious time to recite the Gayatri, the mantra that reveres the illumination of the heart by the divine, a spiritual flow whose principal manifestation is the goddess Savitri. Let us think on the lovely splendour of the goddess Savitri, that she may inspire our minds. Inspiration aspiration, arousal and fertility.
the transmission between divine and human. A dazzling sliver widened in the east as the temple bells rang their response in many voices, and Savitri's masculine aspect, the sun, reached fiery fingers across the water and pulled himself on top of Ganga. He burned there, gloriously impregnating every ripple for a few mind moments before, paler in a whitening sky and with almost indecent haste, continuing his ascent over the prosaic round. After Turner, back to Bruegel. The romance was over and the guts began to fill up. Day's business had begun. As the bustle increased and parties of tourists arrived for boat excursions, we started thinking of breakfast. We made our way through alleys which were coming to life but not yet crowded. A beggar squatting beside his aluminium dish, a vagrant cow, stone lingams and small shrines in nooks and crannies, the usual wadge of leaves, paper and household detritus underfoot, a straggling tree climbing to the narrow band of the sky. Occasionally, where a door in the frontage had been left open, a temple interior was revealed. Maybe we could enter the golden temple where the sacred lingam was worshipped, but it was not to be. Varanasi is one place where non-Hindus are not allowed access to temples. The best we were offered was a chance to see the outside from a neighbouring house for five rupees. We didn't buy it. I can understand the devotees not wanting to be gaped at by tourists. Participation is all. And perhaps for us novices, immersion in Indian daily life was devotion enough. Moreover, regarding fertility ritual and sacrifice, we didn't need to go far to witness and even be part of that. Back at the Vihara, Things were livening up as the preparations for the wedding escalated. They were testing out the PA with snatches of Indian pop songs. Will that be playing tape cassettes all night? I inquired casually. Oh no, not all night, I was reassured. The band will play for the first part of the evening. Hmm. I looked at maps of the city but came up with no leads on where we could spend a quiet evening's meditation. I managed to eventually contact Mr Upadhyay on the phone. He was delighted, but busy. Tramping around the hectic streets on the off chance seemed worse than staying with the situation we had arrived at. We might as well open up to it. Nick Scott By now there was a large marquee near the entrance and a smaller one beyond the main hall both of which were being decked out with flowers. As I was walking round looking at this activity a well-dressed man came up. He was, he told me, with some solemnity the father-in-law of the sister of the bride and from New Delhi. He explained that it was the bride's extended family who were doing all the preparations around us. 
They were here to help out the bride's mother, a recent widow. She is inviting four hundred guests and spending over two lakh rupee, as well as the dowry of one lakh rupee. A lakh rupee was five thousand pounds, and to an Indian middle-class family such as this, that was a lot of money. It is because daughters can cost so much that India has a sex ratio that has been skewed by female infanticide to eight females for every ten miles. In India, courtship is between families, not individuals. My new companion, who knew both families, had been the intermediary. The bride's family had to make the first approach, and then together the families had consulted the astrologers. There are thirty-two different aspects of their star signs that must be considered. The matching of the astrological charts is in addition to the matching already done on the material plane. In this case, the families not only came from the same caste and same subcaste, but they were distantly related and even had the same family name, Kanadam. This young couple are both twenty-one, which is not right. It is tradition here for the bride to be the older. He conceded, however, that the tradition was something which dated from his days when couples were married much younger. A boy of eleven or twelve would get a wife of fifteen, who in their first years together would help bring him up. To be eligible nowadays, however, a middle-class boy first had to have a degree. So now the matching included degrees. If the boy had one. Then the girl must have one too, and from an institution of equivalent status. The groom at this wedding had just received his law degree, and the bride a degree in business administration. According to my guide, the older age of modern brides caused other problems. Before, when they were younger, they could be moulded by their new family. Now they were old enough to think for themselves. Our conversation was interrupted by the spluttering into life of the loudspeakers. Their high-pitched wailing of Indian pop songs filled the courtyard, and as I took my leave because of it, my companion invited us to join them. You must certainly come; it will be a great honour for the family. That night, February the seventh, was supposed to be our half-moon meditation vigil, spent by the Ganges, but his invitation changed that. We decided instead to stay at the Vihara, and try somehow to do it there. It was a strange night. For much of it, we clung to the raft of the small shrine in our room, washed over by waves of noise, occasionally venturing out to take part in the slightly surreal events happening below us. First, there was the preparation of the bride. Which took place in the smaller marquee. When I looked in, she was crouched forward under a canopy of marigolds, holding flowers and rice in her cupped hands as the women of her extended family mumbled and waved things about her and blessed her with little kisses to her feet, shoulders, and head. Two Brahmin priests lounged on thick woven carpet to one side, looking on impassively. One was middle-aged and westernized. The other, old and plump, with long white hair and flowing beard. The groom arrived an hour later, 
From out on our balcony, all I could see was a lot of milling bodies beyond the entrance archway. I managed to resist the temptation to go down to take a look. That is, until I heard the sound of a Dixieland jazz band. I got to the entrance just in time to see an amazing procession which appeared to be leaving. At the head was a carriage drawn by two scrawny horses decked out with elaborate plumes of imitation feathers and long tassels. In it was the groom and his two younger brothers, and sauntering along behind were the rest of the men from his extended family, more than fifty of them. I was told they had all just arrived by coach and were now leaving so they could arrive again in more traditional style. The empty street was lit up by lurid green and flashing red lights, which somehow marched along beside them, and the stark buildings reverberated with bangs and discordant music. As well as the New Orleans jazz band, which played atrociously, there were traditional reed pipes playing a long wailing dirge, supported by stuttering tablers, and at the head someone was letting off elaborate and sometimes stunning fireworks. They marched down to the corner and disappeared around it. The music came to a ragged stop, and after a brief lull, it started up again, and the procession reappeared, now marching back. As they came nearer, I could see in the darkness ahead of the procession two cycle rickshaws being pushed by men in tattered off-white garb of labourers. Each rickshaw contained a generator, sparking furiously, with cables leading back to several sets of lights bobbing along either side of the procession. These sets of lights each had two fluorescent green strip lights forking upwards from a circular base around which chased the flash of red bulbs. That was easy to work out, but I had to peer hard into the gloom under them to see what was moving them. Each circular board was balanced on a head of the poorest of the poor, an old man, several women, one with a baby strapped to a front, and children, all of them dressed in rags. At the entrance, the procession halted, and the brass band stepped forward into the light, wearing an assortment of frayed red and off-red uniforms. They played with a new fury, as the groom's carriage then edged into the yard and his family assembled around it. Five of the band had tubers and they, with a drummer, were playing a discordant chorus which alternated with solos from a trumpet, clarinet and another tuba. The soloists played at the same time in true New Orleans jazz style, but what they were producing sounded more like three badly played Indian pop tunes. Meanwhile, the traditional musicians assembled on the other side of the entrance arch and started banging and wailing. To the accompaniment of the resulting cacophony, the groom's family came forward to be welcomed by the men from the bride's family. The important members at the front bent forward to receive fat garlands of marigolds. The rest got buttonhole roses fixed to the lapels of their western-style suits. Then, with another surge in the noise, the groom's carriage again advanced, for the groom this time to be welcomed by the women folk. They swarmed around him, performing little ceremonies, 
rubbing his face with things, twirling hands and objects about him, and mumbling incantations. The groom, who was wearing a western-style suit and bright yellow brocaded turban, with a plume and a veil of garlanded flowers, looked extremely uncomfortable, and distinctly unhappy. In fact, no one looked happy. That was the real difference from a wedding at home. How glum everyone looked. When we went into the larger marquee to await the bride, the groom, sitting on one of the two thrones, bedecked in marigolds facing us, was staring rigidly ahead, while the menfolk of both families sat in rows of chairs, looking downcast. Indian weddings are a serious business. They are about caste and family, not romance. The waiting groom and his family had never actually seen the bride before, only the photograph sent with her resume. The bride's family hadn't even seen a photograph, but then they knew that the groom would shortly qualify as a lawyer, which was much more important than how he looked. When the bride did enter, the formal red and gold sari she was wearing was so stiff that she had to be guided like a life-sized doll by two women from her family. They escorted her to the front and helped her onto her throne while she looked down all the while at the floor and the groom continued staring gloomily ahead. Their stiff manner, the gorgeous materials worn by the bride, the elaborate headdress of the groom and the bright yellow flowered thrones made them look like Indian versions of Barbie and Ken dolls. Manned by their respective family members, they exchanged big garlands of flowers, still neither looking at the other. Then various combinations of every relative filed up for photographs and videos with them. Even I, Mr. John, Mr. John, you must come, got tugged up. We didn't get to see the actual wedding ceremony. That took place after the meal at one in the morning, a time specified, as was the date, by the astrologers. By then we were trying to sleep, despite the continuing noise, which later included a long contribution from some young boys trying to play a tablet beneath our room. Sleep was fitful, and both of us got up in the night. Ajahn Suchito at 230 when he saw the couple looking more relaxed and sitting beneath our room surrounded by their families, and I at about four when I went for a walk and found the older priest chanting to a group of relatives in the smaller marquee. In the morning there was a large relaxed breakfast, not part of the ceremony, but necessary to keep the bodies functioning, for everyone, including us, the young manager and the resident monk. Then, finally, with the imminent departure of the groom's family coach, full of presents, there was a leave-taking. The bride's immediate family, and the bride herself, were in floods of tears and wailing, and her mother collapsed fainting on the floor, to be revived with a bowl of water thrown in her face. <laughs> I spent the rest of the morning, while everything was being taken down and packed away, recovering and filling two aerograms with dense writing describing the wedding to my mum. I knew she'd love it. Mm -hmm.
Achen Suchito. Early in the morning, a little after the Brahmins had completed their rituals, I was invited down into their tent to give my blessings to the newlyweds. I felt sympathetic to it all. The family had gone through a lot of trouble to seek out what they thought, from the collective of their own experience, would be for the welfare of their children. There was some wisdom in that. Marriage based in romance expects a permanent love affair, an endless glowing sunrise, and too often ends in bitterness and wounding. If you're going to do it, you better know it's about sacrifice. Seeing it in religious terms and having experienced friends to turn to is realism, not decoration. And now that they'd relax, the couple seemed quite happy. It was easy to wish them well. The obvious thing to chant was the Mangala Sutta. Though I didn't explain it in detail. The Brahmins looked on in a non-committal way. Being endowed with craft and learning, having cultivated self-discipline with speech that is well-spoken, this is the highest blessing. To cherish and support mother and father and children, husband or wife. To engage in work that is not harmful. This is the highest blessing. Ardent devotion to the spiritual life. Clear insight into the four noble truths and realization of Nibbana. This is the highest blessing. Though living in the world, one's heart is perfectly unshakable beyond sorrow, confusion and need. This is the highest blessing. After that was the breakfast feast in a great marquee decorated with tinsel set up beside the temple building full of sleepily festive people. Inside, long tables covered with white cloth received family, friends, relatives and anybody around. Nick and I took our places as large fluffy puris and pots of vegetables and basins of sticky halva laced with cashew nuts came round, accompanied by tea in huge kettles. Uncle bustled to and fro making sure that everyone was catered to. The women were involved in animated chatter, with a few dabbing their eyes. Some members of the venerable band were even still around, buttons undone and red jackets open to accommodate the banquet. Though bodies swelled and sleepy heads tried to refuse, round and round the pots went with more food. It was all very traditional for family occasions, a bit too much. Perhaps it's after a revel like this in Varanasi that the Buddha received his first convert from family life, Yasa, the son of a leading merchant had fallen asleep at the feast. He woke up in the small hours of the morning and saw the lovely female musicians also asleep in a post-party shambles. The hair of one had come undone, another was dribbling, others were muttering. To him, it seemed like a charnel ground. 
sick at heart, he cried out, It is fearful! It is horrible! and ran that very night to where the Buddha was living in the deer park. The Buddha gave him a graduated teaching. Of course, when Yasa's mother found him gone, she raised the roof, and father was roused into action. Messengers were sent forth while the merchant himself made his way to the deer park. Meeting him, the Buddha also taught the merchant, who, while not in the same state of mind as his son, was still impressed enough by the Dhamma to ask to be considered as one of the master's disciples. After that, it was easy for the Buddha to convince the merchant that having penetrated his Dhamma fully, his son was no longer interested in worldly pursuits. The father had enough faith and pragmatic wisdom to invite the Buddha and Yasa to his house for a meal. Yasa, his mind free from attachments, right then and there asked to go forth into the Bhikkhu Sangha. Through him, four of his friends from the leading merchant families of Varanasi also went to the Buddha, received teachings, and left the household life as Bhikkhus, followed by fifty more from the neighbouring countryside. Therefore, hold nothing as dear, for separation from the dear is painful. There are no bonds for them who have nothing beloved nor unloved. The going forth represented upheaval in many ways for the individual in a culture that so emphasised the dharma of caste and clan it was like dropping out of the known world. Even though their sons and daughters might have been enlightened by it Having them leave the world of business, property and family rarely received a joyful response from the parents. Hadn't one of Gautama's disciples, a slave girl's daughter no less, told a Brahmin that if the rivers were capable of conferring sanctity, then all the fishes and crocodiles would be bound for heaven. And if rivers could wash away the effects of bad deeds, they could wash away the effects of good deeds too. This summoner Gautama was bringing not only destitution but also blasphemy into the society. So, generally, strenuous attempts would be made to prevent the going forth or to lure the prodigals back to the fold. At best, there was a regretful acquiescence. Sometimes it's only in the context of your own family that you get to hear and consider how the separation can feel to those left behind. It was in his hometown of Kapalavatu, after drawing away his own son and his half-brother, that the Buddha heard the plea of his father. Love for our children, Lord, cuts into the outer skin. Having cut into the outer skin, it cuts into the inner skin. Having cut into the inner skin, it cuts into the flesh. Having cut into the flesh, it cuts into the sinews. Having cut into the sinews, it cuts into the bones. Having cut into the bones, it reaches the marrow and stays there. Lord, it would be good if the venerable ones did not give the going forth 
without the parents' consent? The Buddha agreed. For those who wish to go forth, the son or daughter has to have the parents' consent, the husband, the wife's, and vice versa. It's not to be a rejection, but a sacred thing, a mutual and conscious sacrifice. The day after the wedding was as quiet a day as it ever could be in Varanasi. We both felt pretty rough, but staying around in the Vihara was not going to make things better. Mr Upadhyay came round later in the morning with a bag of oranges. I wanted to give him some teachings, but he couldn't stay long. Also, he couldn't receive us at his home because his in-laws were visiting for a few days. But maybe tonight we would like to go out on a boat on the river. He would take us to the Burning Guts, a very impressive spectacle. We agreed, but knowing the way things are, invited him to meet us in Saranat, if, for family reasons, he couldn't make it. Saranat, peaceful Buddhist Saranat, was where we belonged. So when by the next day, February 9th, we hadn't heard from Mr Upadhyay, we packed our patched-up bags Nick now had two dog collars riveted to it to carry his sleeping mat and left. But you don't get away from the world by walking. Sages know this. They left us this story. Once, when Shiva was meditating in his lone mountain abode, a ferocious demon who had just overpowered the other gods came to him demanding that he hand over his consort, Parvati. Shiva's reply was to open his third eye. A lightning bolt flashed out, producing a lean, hungry monster who set upon the demon with every intention to devour him. The demon threw himself upon the god's mercy. A bargain was struck, and in a trice the other gods were restored. But what to do with the gnashing monster whose sole instinct was to eat? Shiva responded to its howls with the injunction that it should eat itself. And so it did. Tail, legs, body, right up to the head until there was just the face with the insatiable gnashing jaws. Shiva gazed at it in awe. It was the perfect image of what life was about. He called it Face of Glory, vowing that no one could leave the realm of birth and death who did not render it due honour. To take leave of the world with reverence is not so easy especially when it comes to leaving Varanasi. We started off about eight o'clock in the morning. Sarnat wasn't far, eight, twelve or thirty-two kilometres, depending on which guidebook you followed. The road was hellish. To the noise and congestion was added a stench of diesel exhaust from old engines. I was trying to stay spacious about it, but my stomach started rising. We spotted a railway line banked above the level of the road and chose that as the route out of nausea. No good. 
It was infrequent and historic use as a public latrine, with excrement splattered over the rails and piled on the sleepers. We scurried along gagging, until Nick found a way down to the Varuna River, and the vista of green fields and clean air opened up. However, Shiva's face of glory had got here first. Alongside the river was the place where the dead cows and oxen were dumped. The stench of rotting flesh saturated the warm, heavy air, and blue flies buzzed around us as we made our way past corpse after corpse. Only with some reluctance, like city gents at a railway station being asked to move out of the way of the cleaners, did the heavy vultures flop and flap out of our path on their tattered black wings. I suppose it took us an hour and a half to get to Sarnat, but it was long, much too long. Oh, <laughs> 